Jeremiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you. So you shall be my people and I will be your God that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is in this day. And I answered and said, so be it, Lord. Then the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the city of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Saying, hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do but which they have not done. We're going to continue in just a moment. There are three parts to chapter 11, verses 1 through 8, which speaks of the past covenant, verses 9 through 10, or 9 through 13, which is basically the present covenant, and then a command will be given in, in verse 18 through 23. Don't weep, don't pray, and then it will end with a conspiracy against Jeremiah in, in verses 18 through 23. In chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, Jeremiah will give his fourth, fifth, and sixth sermons. And the sermon is going to cover the subject of broken promises, a linen belt, Judah's sin and suffering. Paul, the apostle, wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by the glory of God. This particular chapter, the theme is the theme of oaths and broken promises or the broken covenant. We understand something that when we make a promise or we make an oath, that we do so for specific reasons. And what happens when an oath or a promise is broken? Often a failure to keep a promise will divide a family. It will destroy a business. It can even cripple a nation. And you have to understand something that when Jeremiah, remember, was writing these words, a copy of the law was discovered and recovered by King Josiah when they were remodeling the temple in 2 Kings chapter 22. And you'll remember they find this scroll. The scroll contained the book of Moses Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And right after that, Josiah summoned the leaders and the citizens of Jerusalem. With the discovery and the recovery of the book of the law, the king himself unrolled the scroll and began to speak to the people and to the leaders. He basically... After reading all the way through from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he came to the end of the book. And at that point, the king personally said that he wanted to renew the covenant personally with the living God. And Josiah committed to follow the Lord and obey the commands with all of his heart. And then the king invited the people to do the exact same thing. And they did. They responded to the challenge by dedicating themselves to the covenant and to God's holy word. They promised to obey the Lord. 
They promised to keep his commandments in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. But as soon as they made the promise, they broke the promise. It didn't take long for them to break their promise. And so God speaks to Jeremiah. And he says, I need you to review the contract and the covenant that I have made with the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And so it says again in verse one, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The covenant, of course, is a reference to the promises made and kept by God to Israel. The covenant is restated in verse 3, in verse 4, and in verse 5. He's basically reiterating the blessings and the cursings that were found at great length in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27, verse 27, all the way through to chapter 28, verse 68. And remember that a covenant really is something more than a, than a contract. A contract suggests negotiation and terms and generally has to do with goods and services. A contract is usually task-oriented. But a covenant is different. A covenant's focus is more on the bonding between two parties or two individuals who have a mutual relations and mutual goals. And at stake in a covenant are intimacy and loyalty. That's what every covenant consists of. Intimacy and loyalty. And the intimacy is described by the prophet. Remember in verse 4, you will be my people and I will be your God. That's a statement of intimacy. That God is going to have a unique and a peculiar relationship with these people. And also, loyalty. The loyalty is spelled out in two words, to obey. In other words, the loyalty would be revealed in direct proportion to their willingness to simply follow what God has said. And by the way, I want to point something out to you. The charge to obey is repeated more than 30 times in chapter 7, in chapter 11, in chapter 26, in chapter 35, in chapter 42. So when you repeat something over 30 times, will you please do as I ask? Will you please do as I ask? Will, I, will you please do as I ask? How many times do you think you have to say it before you begin? it begins to sink into you? I'm thinking that God wants us to actually do what he's asking us to do. And so the picture is a picture of Israel entering the land. As a matter of fact, in chapter 27 of Deuteronomy, Israel possesses, enjoys the land. In chapter 28, Israel's taken out of the land. In chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, all the, from verse 15 all the way to chapter 29, God warns the people that every disease and every pestilence and every plague that was visited on Egypt would be visited on them, which is another evidence of the wrath of God, uh, of withholding the former and latter rains in chapter 28, the enemies would defeat them. They would be scattered like blind slaves. Their rich land flowing with milk and honey would be turned into a wilderness. In other words, part of the point of the covenant was a multitude of blessings if they did what God wanted them to do. And a multitude of problems if they didn't. The people of Israel would be plucked out of the land. They would be scattered among the nations. In Deuteronomy, 
the prophet actually uses the expression that they would be, there would be no ease, which is a perfect picture of the state of Jewish people in the world. What other nation, what other people have ever suffered like the Jewish people? The point that God is making is he redeemed them and they were responsible to him. And Moses even warned that if one person, one person in the community decided not to obey, it would affect the whole nation. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, Paul uses that same principle in the New Testament when he talks about the reality that even a little leaven can leaven the whole lump, that a whole group of people can come together and one person can ruin it for everyone. And so in verse three, look what it says. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant. Profound blessings for keeping it. Severe penalties for breaking it. The person who broke the law, disobeyed the commandments would be cursed. And would come under God's judgment. And you see, we sometimes forget that the Lord was looking for a people who would pray, who would obey, who would seek his face, who would want to enter into unbroken fellowship in order to fulfill his purposes. God wasn't looking for a group of people who would build a building and a shrine and, and artifacts and, and rituals. God wasn't looking for religious expression. He was looking for personal friendship. And so the Lord extended two promises. The people would experience a personal relationship with the true and the living God. And they would be given a marvelous hope. They would be given a land that flowed with milk and honey. And so the Lord commands Jeremiah to pronounce a solemn curse. On those who had failed to obey the commands. And he's simply repeating what was already found in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Cursed is the one who does not confirm, confirm all the words of this law. And it says, and all the people shall say, Amen. And so here was the deal. Here's the deal. I'll take you out of Egypt. I'll take you out of bondage. I'll take you out of slavery. I will redeem you and I will reconcile you to myself. And I'll make a mechanism so that you can have a true friendship and true relationship with me. And this is the deal. I'll be the Lord and you'll be my people. And they all said, we agree. And in verse four. Which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, obey my voice and do according to all that I command you. So you shall be my people and I will be your God. By the way, the iron furnace is a metaphor for the hardship and the pain and the slavery in Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 20, it says, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace. Same words. Out of Egypt to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Verse 21 of Deuteronomy. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan. This is Moses speaking. And that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving to you in, as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan. But you shall cross over and possess that good land. I want to warn you. Take heed to yourselves lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. In other words, look, Moses is saying, I don't get to go with you into the promised land. I have to stay over here. But if I have any parting words, it's this. Remember the covenant that God has made with you and whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever else you do. Don't embrace idolatry because your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. 
Do you realize that that picture of God as a consuming fire and a jealous God has caused many people to turn away from the God of the Bible? Some people think, well, I don't want to follow a God who's a jealous God. I don't want to follow a God who wants to have an exclusive relationship and fellowship with me. But remember, the exclusivity that God talks about isn't marred by wickedness, stupidity, or selfishness. He's a perfect God and your creator. And there's a reason why he loves you and he desires you. Life apart from God in Christ is described as an iron furnace. And that's what it was. That's the picture of slavery and bondage. And so part of the point of the picture of the covenant was, don't you remember why you entered into the covenant to begin with? Do you remember your life as an unbeliever? Do you remember the emptiness and the loneliness and the darkness? Remember, for the for the children of Israel, they were in bondage and as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They were somebody else's master doing somebody else's bidding for doing what somebody else wanted to do. They were living under the pain and the pressure of belonging to somebody else. And they cried out to God and they said, this isn't what we were made for. And this isn't why we exist. This isn't who we are. And remember, when you became a Christian, remember how the darkness and the emptiness and the guilt and the sin began to pile up inside of your heart. And there was a reason why you turned from your sin and you embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And there's a reason why you prayed the prayer. Look, here's the deal. I'll give you my life. And you give me your love. I'll give you my guilt. And you give me your forgiveness. I'll give you my sin. And you'll give me righteousness in Christ. What a deal. Probably what some of you are wondering is why didn't I take the deal sooner? The literal Hebrew in in verse 4 reads... Listen to my voice and do them according to all that I command you. In other words, there's a reason why I've entered into this covenant. I need you to do them. John talks about it in first John when he says, walk in the light, even as Jesus is in the light. In verse 5, it says that I may establish the oath which I've sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. And I answered and said, so be it, Lord. Jeremiah is repeating Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. And remember what the land is. The land flowing with milk and honey became a metaphor for that place of peace and provision for the Jewish people coming out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. It was the place of freedom. It was the place of protection. It was the place, the place of God's favor. And for Christians, the land is Jesus. Jesus is the land that we occupy. It doesn't just extend from the Gaza Strip all the way to Lebanon and east to the Jordan River and west to the Mediterranean Sea. The land that you occupy begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation and occupies all of the promises that are in God and Christ. You live in Jesus He is the promised land. Our place is in him. And so ultimately the place flowing with milk and honey for the Christian becomes a symbol or a metaphor also for that place of permanent safety, permanent security, permanent friendship and fellowship. It's first and foremost in Jesus. It's second becomes a type and a picture of heaven itself. When you are finally redeemed and you enter into into heaven itself. And so when they say, so be it, it's the response of the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 27, 26. In our culture and society, when you enter into a contract or when you have a wedding ceremony, when you enter into a contract, people will typically say, 
This is where you sign on the dotted line. In a marriage contract or covenant, the pastor, the priest says, repeat these vows. I do. The moment you say I do in front of the priest, the pastor, your friends and your family, that means that the covenant has been enacted. When we sign on the dotted line, when we say I do, when the children of Israel said amen, it was the ancient Hebrew version of where do I sign on the dotted line? You see, you might be thinking, well, it means so be it. And and so it does. It means I agree. And so it does. But when God extended the invitation and they responded, we will do it. There was the expectation that they would do it. Just like a wife has for her husband. Just like a husband has for his wife. When you make the vow. Silly girls. Did you expect your husband to really keep those vows? By the way, for those of you who are married and your husband made vows, how many of you actually thought that that really meant he should keep those vows? Yeah. Husbands, when the wife made the vow, how many of you said, and, and I actually really expect him to keep the vows? Yeah, hopefully. And so God says... I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And who's in? And they say, we're in. But not really. Not really. Because the first opportunity to disobey, they took it. Over and over and over again. And so in verse 6, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. Here's what's happening. Jeremiah is repeating the vows in the book of Deuteronomy. But I'm going to suggest something else to you. Jeremiah is told, quote, Proclaim all these words In the cities of Judah, that is, proclaim in all of the cities of Judah that I expected that the original covenant would be honored and you haven't honored it. I asked you to listen and you didn't. I asked you to believe and you didn't. I asked you to obey and you didn't. Why do you think all of this is important? Because remember what we've already learned? The Babylonian army is already knocking at the door of the northern part of the country. There is a catastrophic judgment that is about to take place. And the catastrophic judgment is going to create so many tears. It's going to generate so much blood and so much death. And so Jeremiah is once again sent to remind them of Judah's tragic refusal to listen and to obey. And down through the centuries, God had sent messenger after messenger to remind the people and warn the people. The people were reminded to obey him in verses 7 and 8. And that disobedience wasn't an option, but they didn't really heed the warning. And then most of them who had disobeyed embraced their own selfish desires. They lived selfish lives of indulgence and greed and pleasure and man-made worship and unrighteous lives. Look at verse 7. For I earnestly, I earnestly. Earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, obey my voice. Here's what he's saying. This is not a new message. This is something that I've had to repeat over and over and over again. From the moment that you left Egypt, from the moment you entered into the wilderness, from the moment through the 40 years you finally made it through the wilderness, from the moment you entered into the land, and then from the moment that you occupied the land, it was a constant struggle, a constant struggle, a constant disobedience, constantly dealing with selfishness, constantly dealing with indulging yourself, constantly looking for things to make you happy. 
It becomes a type and a picture even of some of your lives. You really wonder, is Jesus really the Lord? And did I really make this covenant with Jesus? And and the deal that I made with God about exchanging my life for his life and then walking in his life. And look what it says in verse 8. Yet they did not obey or incline there, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. The terms of the covenant never change since its inception. Here's what the Lord is basically saying. Guess what? I made a deal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His children proliferated in Egypt. The children of Israel cried out to me in Egypt and said, we want out of here. Slavery is not who we are or what we want. We want redemption. We want freedom. We want we want to be able to free to serve the true and the living God. But everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. You see, the reason why that becomes such an important point, even for us, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. In the eyes of many, the sad and tragic circumstances that people sometimes find, they, they, they sometimes think, well, this is some mishap. This is some tragic accident. This is just the way it is. This is an innocent mistake. This is due to bad leadership. There's a reason why all of these things are going bad. It's because of the economy. It's because of the government. It's because of my wife. It's because of my children. It's because I'm unemployed. It's because of this. It's because of that. And the Lord says, you know what? It might be difficult for you to come to grips with this. But almost all of our problems are due to our refusal to submit to the Lord. It's because we resist the Lord. It's because we reject the Lord. It's because we stubbornly, persistently ignore, resist, reject the Lord. Over and over again, the Lord had spoken to the people of Judah in Jerusalem. He said, look, I'm not looking for just an intellectual acknowledgement. I don't want you just in your mind to sort of, you know, I believe intellectually that there's a God rather than no God. And I believe that the chances of everything existing the way that it exists by just a series of dumb luck and sheer chance really doesn't make sense. So, yes, I believe in God. But the Bible says that even the devils believe in God and tremble. That there isn't some just some intellectual acknowledgement, but the Lord was inviting the people of Judah and Jerusalem to love him and to trust him. And obviously, in the New Testament, we discover something that the mechanism to love the Lord and trust the Lord is found in submission and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. When our hearts aren't committed to the Lord, when our hearts aren't really in it, we half-heartedly or reluctantly follow him, follow him. We half-heartedly or reluctantly trust him. We half-heartedly, reluctantly obey him. And it creates problems. And so in verse 9 it says, And the Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. By the way, the conspiracy consisted in the hard-hearted refusal to listen and obey the Lord. The reference is to the deliberate resisting of God's appeals for resistance and insistence upon trusting this false peace message that the false prophets were giving. They're saying, you're really okay. There's no judgment around the corner. I know that thing you can hear the sounds of war off in the distance but jeremiah has it all wrong god isn't going to judge us he's not that kind of a god by the way the word translated conspiracy is the hebrew word kesher it's a noun it's an ancient hebrew word which meant to bind 
or to join together. It was a word to describe, of all things, braids. Have you ever seen how ancient people made rope? They would take animal products, if you will, like straw, and then they would string it together and they would braid it. Some of you as a kid learned how to braid. Like you would take three ropes and you would lay them side by side, one on top of the other. That's actually what it means here. It means to bind or to join together like a rope or a braid. And hence the conspiracy. Now, let me help you understand what I mean by conspiracy. A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah. What kind of a conspiracy? It's not just one person who decides in rebellion to disobey God. It's where all of the people get together. And they say. Let's not obey God. I mean, I watch television and I listen to the radio and. I watch the newspapers, even though it's old media. And everybody gets together and they and everybody agrees and everybody understands that it's old fashioned and stupid to believe in a God or to trust this God. It's crazy to think that the Bible might be true. It's ridiculous to think that Jesus Christ really lived and he died and he he rose from the dead. You don't really believe that. Have you followed the news with the popular so-called presidential candidates. The moment a presidential candidate says the Bible is true and Jesus Christ is Lord, you would think that an atomic explosion had taken place. So not only have the people sinned, but the people have joined forces in sinning. In other words, there is a united effort to resist And reject God. And in verse 10 it says, They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. And they've gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant which I made with their fathers. Jeremiah is using the language of revolution. The violation of the covenant included a return to the sins of their forefathers. And worse. A refusal to hear God's word and worse, a willingness to embrace false gods. As a matter of fact, the iniquities of their forefathers is described in Numbers chapter 25. And I just want you to turn there real quick. It's right after Leviticus, Numbers 25. In verses 1 through 3, in Numbers 25, it says, in verse 1, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Do you understand what you're reading? God had made this covenant that he was going to be the true and the living God. But the people wanted something physical, tangible, something they could see with their eyes and they could touch with their hands. And so the violation of the covenant is talked about also specifically in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, where in Hosea 9, 10, it says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season, but they went to Baal, Peor, and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing that they loved. Baal was the Canaanite deity who basically represented life. Fertility, reproduction. And so when the Lord says in Hosea, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree. The image is that within that fig tree is the seed and within that seed is future fruit. And within that fruit is the sense of a group of people who in love and dedication and spiritual commitment would enter into friendship and relationship with God. But the rebellion and the disobedience 
was immediate. And that it would bring inescapable judgment. And so in verse 11, it says, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will surely bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. In other words, this continual, absolute, persistent rebellion and disobedience would bring about the judgment Judah and Jerusalem wouldn't be able to pray their way out of this situation. Because the rebellion was beginning to bear fruit. The Talmud reads, The gates of tears are never shut. But in the Talmud, it's a reference to a sincere, true, genuine repentance. Look what it says again in verse 11. I will not listen to them. Here's the idea. Ephraim, Judah, and Jerusalem are crying out for relief. The soldiers are coming. The army is marching. The people are going to be killed. The families are going to be destroyed. They're going to be taken into slavery. They're going to cry out to God. They're going to weep and they're going to cry and their hands are going to shake and they're going to vomit and every molecule in their body is going to quiver in fear. And they're going to cry out to God and they're going to say, why is this happening? Why is God allowing this to happen? How can you explain to me how this is happening? And over and over and over again, the explanation that God has given is you are sad about the circumstances that you find yourself in, but your heart isn't broken and you're not willing to repent. You are afraid of the circumstance that you find yourself in. You are afraid of the pain that you're in. You are afraid in the deprivation that you're in. But none of those things has brought about repentance. And it becomes a lesson for each and every one of us. When our sinful behavior brings about sinful consequences and we cry out to God and we say, why is my husband leaving? Why is my wife leaving? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why is my business destroyed? Why is this country falling apart at the seams? Why, 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 why is all of this stuff happening? And over and over and over and over again, the Lord is saying, I need you to turn from your sin. But I need you to do more than turn from your sin. I need you to embrace me and love me and know me and accept me. And so the idea is that they're crying out because they've lost their husband. They've lost their job. They've lost their wife. They've lost their family. They've lost the accumulation of a lifetime of working. They've lost all of those things. And the dread is filling their hearts. But they don't. They don't want to turn from their sin. And they don't want to embrace. God as Savior. And because they don't want to turn from their sin and because they don't want to embrace the Lord as the Savior, their prayers remain unheard. In verse 12, it says, then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go out and cry out to the gods, small g, to whom they offer incense. That is a form of worship, but they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. In other words, the people will turn to their idols for comfort and security, but the idols bring no comfort and they bring no security because they're not real. And so the armies of Babylon are marching. And the horror comes upon them. And they call out to the false gods in the time of trouble. Just like when the consequences come raining down and people will go, well, what do I do? I trusted money, but now I don't have any money. I trusted that I had a place to live, but now I don't have a place to live. I trusted in this particular future. I, I trusted in Social Security. I trusted in this. I trusted in that. I trusted in this and I trusted in that. And you trust in everything other than what you really need to put your confidence in. 
And when it says to whom they offer incense, it's in the present participle, which implies that even as they're crying out to the Hebrew God, Lord, Lord, why is this happening to us? They continue to offer prayers and worship to the false gods. They cry out to the God of Israel and they say, Lord, why is this happening? Is there anybody else out there? Anyone, I'm anyone, I'm willing to hear from anyone out there. They don't care where the source of salvation comes from just so that they can experience comfort and relief. And we understand why. Because the way of the transgressor is hard. If you're involved in drugs, if you're involved in promiscuity, if you're involved in all of these things and you begin to reap the consequences of a life of rebellion and disobedience and the consequences are hard and you want relief from those consequences. But is it brought to you to a place of humility and brokenness and dependence and saying, here's what I want. Here's what I really want. I want to trust the true and the living God. In verse 13, it says, for according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, you've set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. In other words, idol worship was rampant. There was a God on every street corner. There was a God on every in every city. There were way more gods than there were people to occupy the gods. In India, there are 300 million gods. In the 1980s, there was a, a song that went one night in Bangkok and the world's your oyster. The bars are temples, but the pearls ain't free. You'll find a God in every golden cloister. And if you're lucky, then the God's a she. I can feel an angel sliding up to me. One night in Bangkok makes a hard man humble. All of the gods and goddesses, all of the promiscuity, all of the indulgence, all of the false deities in every city, on every street, in every channel, on every station. You know what's interesting about the number of false gods and goddesses? In direct proportion to the number of false gods and goddesses, there seems to be an endless supply Or have you tried this yet? Science, reason, agnosticism, skepticism, wealth. There's all these things that you can try and then you can fail. And once you go through 100 and 200 and 500 and 1,000 things, there's the true and the living God. And there's the person of Jesus and there's freedom from sin and a right relationship with God. How many things do you have to try before you suddenly realize, hey, you know what? There's no salvation in that. There's no forgiveness in that. There's no real relationship with God in that. And in verse 14, look what it says. So do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or a prayer for them. For I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. Here's the deal. Gino, are you saying that there's ever a time when it's inappropriate to pray? Yeah. Here's the inappropriate time to pray. Lord, I want you to relieve me of my circumstances, but I'm going to continue in my sin and rebellion. I have no intention of giving up my sin or my rebellion. By the way, if you have no intention of giving up your sin or your rebellion and trusting the Lord, can you pray till you're blue in the face? Is God because he's a gracious God and a kind God and a loving God and a generous God? Is God able to do whatever God wants? Does God know that your rebellion and your sin has a threshold and that there's going to come a point where you get so sick of your sin that you can't stand it even one more day? Here's what he's saying. Prayers offered in rebellion should expect no answer. Three times the prophet was told not to pray for the people. 
In chapter 7, verse 16, don't pray for them. Chapter 11, here in verse 14, don't pray for them. Chapter 14, verse 11, don't pray for them. William MacDonald, one of the great Bible teachers of all time, wrote, quote, The people have no right to come to the temple with offerings as if to hide their guilt or avert their doom. Here's the deal. The idea being, we'll go to the temple. We'll give offerings. We'll offer prayers. We'll do religious things. Is your heart broken? Are you willing to turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Is your heart broken? I'm going to go to church. But I have no intention whatsoever of knowing and loving Jesus. I'm going to put something in the offering box. But I have no intention of loving and serving Jesus and turning from my sin. I want to do something for the poor in order to hide my guilt or alleviate my shame. But I have no intention of turning from my sin and embracing Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Here's what the Lord is saying to Jeremiah. The evil and rebellion and disobedience like cancer was at a very advanced stage. A fatal stage. People can say, but I prayed. We can pray, but if our prayer is, Heavenly Father, I want to continue in my sin. Heavenly Father, I want to still live with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Heavenly Father, I still want to live a life of, of selfishness and rebellion and disobedience. In Jesus' name, amen. See, you're laughing because of the ridiculousness of the prayer. God's under no obligation whatsoever. But I want relief. I want comfort. I want peace. I want Joy, I want assurance. But I don't want to accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And that's the point. They continue to resist and reject God. They continue to trust their own wisdom rather than God's truth. And when you continue to trust yourself rather than the Lord, you can't expect an answer to your prayer. But look what it says in verse 15. There's a hint. What has my beloved to do in my house? Having done lewd deeds with many and the holy flesh has passed from you. When you do evil, then you rejoice. Look at the endearment in verse 15. What has my beloved to do in my house? Do you understand the sensitivity? Even in the midst of all of these things, the Lord is saying, my darling. That's what my beloved basically means. My darling. My precious one. My beloved. The object of my love. The object of my passion. The object of my affection. The lewd deeds were probably the popular forms of worship in the ancient world. This is the blatant disobedience of true worship and the violation of the first three commandments. In other words, the picture that God is painting is they broke commandment number one. They broke commandment number two. They broke commandment number three. And when they broke commandment one... Number one, his heart broke. And when they broke commandment number two, his heart broke. And when they broke commandment number three, his heart broke. Just like you. When you have a covenant relationship, just like you, when you come to a place of trust and dependence and intimacy, 
the holy flesh seems to be a reference to the false forms of, of sacrifice. Remember, in the Jewish culture and society, they would go to the temple and they would offer a lamb. They would offer a ram. They would offer birds. They would offer sacrifices to the Lord in the temple. They would offer the sacrifices in the temple, but then they would offer another sacrifice on the side to the false deity just in case. So they would remain culturally and religiously Jews, but in their mind and in their heart, they entertained the idea that these false gods somehow had influence in their life. And in verse 16, it says, the Lord called your name green olive tree. Lovely and of good fruit with the noise of a great tumult. He has kindled fire on it and its branches are broken. These are these are titles. It says in the Old Testament, Israel, remember, is called a vine or a grapevine. That was in chapter 20 or chapter two, verse 21. In other words, Israel was referred to as a cluster of grapes. Now Israel is spoken of a green olive tree. And you have to understand something. Both grapes and olive trees were a source of life. They were a source of oil. They were a source of food. They were a source of sustenance. Olive trees were meant to produce fruit. And that's part of the point, even in the New Testament, where Jesus talks about a tree should bear fruit. You place the seed, you plant the seed, you you till the soil, you water the seed, the plant grows, it produces fruit. You expect to partake from the fruit. But this green tree that has been so tenderly taken care of, that was meant to produce fruit doesn't produce fruit. And all you can do is burn it. Do you know how hard it is to burn a green tree? Do you understand how much fire is necessary to consume that tree? And so that's the idea. Ephraim is represented as a green tree producing no fruit that becomes ripe for judgment. And in verse 17, look what it says. For the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and in offering incense to Baal. Now, I want you to think this through. In verses 14 through 17, in describing Judah's future, the Lord uses the word trouble, doom, tempest or storm, fire, evil. Are you getting a vibe? Trouble, doom, storm, fire, evil. Can you imagine? So, Lord, what is it, what, what's your plan for us? How can I convince you? That's the point that is being made. God is provoked to anger. They have provoked me to anger by offering incense to Baal. In other words, remember, Baal is the Canaanite god who is not real, who can offer no hope, who doesn't even really exist. When it's, and don't, even miss, don't miss the point in verse 17 where it says, who planted you. It says, for the Lord of hosts, that means he's the captain of the assembly, who planted you. Who planted you. Think about this for just a moment. The Lord says, I'm the one who loved you. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who redeemed you. I took you out of a place of slavery and I placed you in a position of love and affection and protection. And I planted you in a place so that you would have everything that you needed in order to bear fruit. 
Henry Ward Beecher wrote. A man who does not know how to be angry does not know how to be good. And a man that does not know how to be shaken to his heart's core with indignation over evil things is either a fungus or a wicked man, unquote. Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 15, it says Jesus made a whip out of cords. He drove all out from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. Those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Question, did Jesus ever get mad? Did Jesus ever get angry? Is it, was it because he had anger management issues? No, it's because there is a right time and a wrong time to be angry. Winston Churchill used to say, a man is as big as the things that make him angry. Even the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who tutored Alexander the Great, said, anybody can become angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that's not within everybody's power and isn't easy. Think about that for just a moment. Being angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose in the right way. You know how many people I know who are capable of doing that perfectly every single time? Now, that would be no one except for God. God is the only person who can be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose in the right way. And that becomes part of the point. Is it within your power to be angry? For the right reason, with the right person, for the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose. This is all the more reason why the Bible says be angry, but don't sin. This is another reason why the Bible makes it abundantly clear that sometimes what motivates us isn't what motivates God. And look at the people's conspiracy in verses 18. It says, now the Lord gave me knowledge of it and I know it for you showed me their doings. Jeremiah receives a supernatural heads up. It's a plot to kill Jeremiah. In other words, after his now 11 part series on why judgment's coming, the people are going, we have to get rid of Jeremiah. <laughs> We just can't take this one more week. And in verse 19, it says, but I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. And I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit and let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. Does that verse sound familiar to you? It should, because it's referenced in the New Testament. Isaiah spoke of it, speaks of it, that Jesus was like a lamb being led to the slaughter. In the New Testament, Jesus is described as having enemies who come against him. And the enemies come against Jesus and say, let's kill Jesus so that the rest of the nation can be spared. Jeremiah and Jesus had something in common. They both had a message. Both were hated for their message. And it was decided that both of them should be killed. And in verse 20, it says, but, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have revealed my cause. In other words, these guys who are trying to kill me, get them, Lord. Don't let them get away with it. In verse 21, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life, saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. Now it's out of the bag. 
Anathoth, by the way, is Jeremiah's hometown. And when it says, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, some Bible scholars have suggested that these are probably close relatives. These are probably family and friends. These are people from the place where he grew up. And in verse 22, it says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. Here's the idea. The plot to kill Jeremiah will not go unnoticed or unpunished. Jeremiah receives assurance as he prays that his adversaries will be punished. In other words, he's going, Lord, they're trying to kill me. I know. You're not going to let him get away with it, right? No. What's going to happen to them? I'm going to punish them. The young men will die by the sword and their sons and their daughters are going to die by famine. In other words, the judgment that we've spoken of and that we've talked about. It's going to be visited upon them. And in verse 23. And there shall be no remnant of them. For I will bring catastrophe on the men of Anathoth. Even the year of their punishment. What's going to happen to them, Lord? They're going to disappear. And you'll never hear from them ever again. What's going to happen to them, Lord? What's going to happen to the people who find Jesus and kill Jesus? What's going to happen to them, Lord? One of two things will happen. They'll be punished. Or they'll be saved. If they refuse, reject, resist, they'll be punished. Jeremiah had been warned that he would face Resistance, rejection, strong opposition, grave danger, assassination attempts. Jeremiah could expect no cooperation from the religious leaders. You know what we discover? In the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, the wages of sin still remain death. And the gift of God remains eternal life in Jesus Christ. The wages of sin are the same. And the gift of God is the same. The gift of God remains, I will love you and I'll enter into friendship and fellowship with you. God told the prophet Jeremiah that even if Moses and Samuel were to stand and intercede for the people of Judah... His divine decree would remain the same. If you just turn the page over really quickly to chapter 15, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable towards these people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Hey, well, what if Moses came and begged for their lives? It's not going to help. What if Samuel came forward and begged for their lives? Not going to help. What if Jesus comes forward and begs for their life? What if Jesus comes forward and says, I love them so much and I'm going to save them. And I'm going to break his heart and I'm going to break her heart. And they're going to come to a place of humility and dependence where they're fed up with their sin and they want to embrace me as the Savior. In the meantime, Jeremiah has his work cut out for him. (laughs) In chapter 12, he's going to ask the question, why do the wicked prosper in chapter 12? And that's what we're going to talk about the next time we meet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Lord, we know that the way of the transgressor is hard, hard, hard. But Lord, there is still a path to mercy. 
a path of grace, a path of peace, a path of forgiveness, we can still find a way from judgment and condemnation to peace and joy, forgiveness and hope. For so many people, Lord, they want to hold on to their sin. They want to hold on to their pride. They want to hold on to what little control they think that they have of their life. But Lord, I pray that you would offer them a way out. Peace and joy and grace and forgiveness and hope. Lord, I pray that you would extend the invitation. That if they would turn from their sin. With a real heart. And a willingness to trust Jesus fully and finally and forever. That they would experience all of the things that they long to experience. Love and joy and peace. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would issue that invitation. And Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give them both the wisdom. And the grace. To cry out to you. To save me. Forgive me. Redeem me. Because of what Jesus has done. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand. Thank you.